Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 505 with the legendary Nancy Duarte. Nancy is sharing how to merge data with story structures to create really inspiring presentations that generate action. So you'll learn, one, the three-act structure of data, two, the true hero of your presentation, and three, how to make for magical moments for your audience. If you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F505. Here's Nancy's story. Nancy Duarte is a communication expert who's been featured in Fortune, Time Magazine, Forbes, Fast Company, Wired, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, LA Times, and CNN. Her firm, Duarte Inc., is the global leader behind some of the most influential visual messages in business and culture. As a persuasion expert, she cracked the code for effectively incorporating story patterns into business communications. She's written five best-selling books, four of which are award-winning, and she's been ranked number one on a list of the world's 30 top communication professionals. Thanks to Nancy for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Nancy, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. Well, I am excited to dig into your wisdom, and I'd love it if you could start us off by sharing a story about one of your clients who really transformed their presentation using stories. Oh, that's a fantastic question. So we work with really, really great brands. So I can't name the customers, but I sure can tell you outcomes of what's happened to them after they started to embrace story. So there's one local public CEO here who went from unfavorably rated on Glassdoor to uh, the highest uh, rated CEO. Um, And a lot of it had to do with uh, when he would talk about his work, it was kind of self-congratulatory. And we taught him how to tell stories and how to make a stronger connection to the audience. And uh, it actually skyrocketed his glass door rating. So he worked hard on internal communications, which is important. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. So, so for example, when presenting in front of employees, he would kind of convey that uh, he was responsible or she was responsible for that victory. 
and accomplishment and results. And, and you sort of had a shift there or, or how'd that go down specifically? Yeah. What would happen is because he was an accomplished CEO at, a, at his former public company, he would always point back to big victories, big victories at this other company, big victories at the other company. And then uh, what we asked him to do is part of telling a great story is the fact that the story has a messy middle. That's the part of the most exciting part of a movie, right? The boy doesn't get the girl and then the monster steps on him and then they get shot in the shoulder with an arrow and then they have to climb out of a pit. Like that's the exciting part. And that's the thing we love about stories is that life is hard and we're watching and cheering for this person as they go through these hard times. So we explained that's the part. That's what makes you transparent. That's what makes you humble. That's what makes people connect to you if you tell a story where you failed. And so he did. He told a story about a skunk work project that he started when he started at this new company that he was at and how it failed and what he did, what he learned from it. And just adding that one anecdote into this one talk, he was flooded. Like, that's the best talk you've ever given. I loved it. It was the best one ever. And it it just had to do with being real and talking about, hey, I'm, I'm not going to fail on your watch. I already learned this lesson and being really open and transparent about who you are and uh, things that you've overcome. And a lot of leaders are afraid to do that. Well, well, that's huge. And I guess the proof is in the pudding right there in terms of the the complete transformation and perception. Exactly. And and then the results. And there, there's a lot of sensitive topics right now that a lot of people are having to address at work and in life. And I think when you frame them in a story and tell it as a story, people will remember them more than if you just, you know, whipped out a PowerPoint and clicked through a bunch of slides. I think people are craving human contact, human flourishing at work and meaning. And story creates all those things. And and you have put some numbers to that in your book there, Data mm-hmm. Story, associated with the extent to which stories can resonate a whole lot more than, than facts and, and data. Can you share some of those perspectives? Yeah. So uh, my new book is really about how to explain data so that people move to action through storytelling. So when you see the words data and story combined, some people think it means that I'm saying, oh yeah, apply a bunch of fiction to your data. And that's not what this is about. It really is about taking the strength of the framework of a three-act structure of a story and using it to explain your data. So now we can hook up fMRI machines to the brain and see what's happening when a story is being told. And now we have scientific proof that the sensing parts of the brains fire up when a story is being told. And so why not use this magnificent framework to actually explain data so that you can move people to action because of the results of the data. So that's kind of the premise of the book. And and I was really struck with your charts that sort of showed the bar charts sort of Mm. moving in different directions and how that could correspond to to different kinds of of stories. So could you give us a little bit of an example or overview of, of how those things go together? Yeah, I love that. So one of the other things that's happened as far as science and story is that the Computational Story Lab put in all of the books from the Gutenberg Project. There was almost 1,700 books, public domain fiction books. They fed it into a computer, and it actually did show that stories have six finite arcs. And those arcs, they either end in a happy ending, you know, comedy or tragedy. They end and it resolves, or it ends and it was tragic. And same thing happens to a chart. So picture in your mind, you have a line chart, and the happy ending to that line chart would be if it went up. And then a tragic ending would be if you wanted the line to go up and it went down. Well, those are classic story arcs. And the way you communicate when the line is going up 
versus the way you need to communicate if it's ending as a tragedy, people process those stories very differently. And so the book gets into what to do if your chart uh, falls on a specific, one of the six emotional arcs, what it is that the audience needs to hear from you and how to communicate that particular arc structure <laughs> to, to an audience. It sounds complicated to explain verbally, but there's visuals in the book to support it. But I think sometimes we don't consider the emotional impact that a chart like rushing toward the x-axis just like falling and what happens in people's hearts when the line you know rushes high into the right and so it, it just makes you stop and consider how to communicate those story structures because your data actually is a story structure and, and those six arcs that's kind of just like the the trajectories in terms of up 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 or down 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 or up then down then back up, up. down up <laughs> down up yeah <laughs> it's like a roller coaster ride yeah well Maybe just to, to bring it to life, could you share sort of one story in conjunction with data and so that, that listeners can say, ah, that is a lot better. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great ask. So I could um, share a data story where we found an insight in the data and then you frame it in three acts, like a three act story. And so I, it's a super simple one, but I'll share it anyway. I mean, just pick one of these super simple ones, like act one. So this is where we found an opportunity in the data. So you found something that's great and you really want to exploit this opportunity you found in the data. Act one is you state the current situation. So you would say, our new webinar about cloud services attracted more attendees than our historical high. That's the current reality. And there's a complication. There were 642 highly qualified leads that came in from the webinar and it surpassed all other marketing channels by 22%. The third act is what's the action you want to take. So it's we should therefore re redirect our marketing funds to cover quarterly webinars to increase highly qualified lead flow. So it's a tiny itty bitty executive summary told in three acts that paints the current reality, what's going to be kind of hard about it and what we need to do about it. And it's data. I mean, I'm not, it's not fiction. Like I said, it's not a fairy tale. It literally is using the three act structure to construct an executive summary. So you could tell a manager and try to get funding for your webinars or whatever it is that you're trying to get done. Well, so now, now I love that story. And, and I'm thinking if I'm on the receiving end of it, I'm going to say, heck yes, let's double down, triple down right. on this approach. I'm in. <laughs> so so what would be the alternative way of, of presenting kind of like that same set of things that's much less effective? Well, I th uh, what happens is you might just flick a chart to the boss. You might just, you don't communicate. So some people would say, well, the data speaks for itself. Well, did it really say, hey, let's go and get more funding? No, the data might have said, hey, that was 22% more effective, but it won't ever say the action that needs to be taken. So there's kind of these different mindsets about data. Some people just love to be in the data and they flick it. They're like, well, it's outside my pay grade to do anything about it. I'm just going to mm. flick these charts. So part of what this book does is it challenges you to move just from exploring the data to dipping your toe into explaining it. Because when you explain the data, that's when you move from being an individual contributor to becoming a strategic advisor. So a lot of this is about shaping what the data is saying so the people above you understand it. And it actually helps your career. It'll actually help your career trajectory because artificial intelligence can go now and it can explore the data and it can actually tell you the findings in the data. But a robot or artificial intelligence will never be able to tell you what to do about it accurately. So it really is a career move to learn how to explain data well. Yeah. And, and I, there have been so many occasions in which I have 
looked at slides and there's a bunch of stuff on there. And I'm thinking, is that good? Is that bad? There's a lot of lines. They're squiggling. Are we happy about those squiggles? <laughs> are, are we not happy <laughs> about those squiggles? And so I think that is huge when you when you share that message. And, and I'm big on, well, I, I'll, I'll get your take on this. I am really <laughs> big on having the the slide headlines kind of convey the point. So instead of saying sales over time, the headline would read, uh, you know, sales have increased uh, su- significantly more uh, this quarter as compared to yeah. previous ones, for instance. Yeah. So, so we know, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this is significant and it's a big deal. And it kind of lets us know what to, to focus in on. Uh, wh- what's your take on this? And that's great. Yeah. So the chart, the chart title itself should stay true. Like it should, it should just state the fact of the chart. And what you mentioned, which is great, is the slide title. Now the slide title is where you can make an observation. And that's what you did. You made an observation that this quarter was great. This it's up significantly. That's an observation you can make on the chart. And then there's another layer of information that's therefore, what do we need to do about it? Because what's interesting is it's usually human behavior that makes a chart go up or down. It's like, okay, the salespeople sold more, so revenue is up. The accounting screwed up, so our profit is down. Human behavior makes charts go up or down or like clicks on a website make charts go up or down. So there's a desirable direction you may want it to go. But then once you've observed it and said, hey, we had a great, hey, Q4 was significantly higher. That's an observation. Therefore, what do we need to do about it? Is there an opportunity to exploit or a problem to solve so that the next quarter can be even higher? And so that's kind of where the gap is between an observation and understanding what action they need to take because of the observation. So you're right. So your slide title should be either an observation or an action to be taken. Absolutely agree. Oh, okay, cool. And now I want to talk maybe a bit about the, you mentioned the phrase earlier, dip your toe into the explaining of data. And I think mm-hmm. that's an apt picture because I think what I teach this in workshops, I have participants who seem a little bit scared. It's the two to say, oh man, like like someone, when I gave these example headlines, like, hey, don't do this, but instead do that. I've had people say, whoa, that's a... Those are pretty sensational headlines that you're using there, Pete. Like it's, I don't know what the word, sensational, it's sort of over the top, it's too much, it's intense. Like it's it's sort of, it's almost shocking you know, for some who are not accustomed to this practice. So so, so what's your take if, if people are feeling a little risk averse or, or, or they don't want to be too bold in, in making a statement about what the data show? How do you think about the psychological elements here? It's really interesting because one of the things, if we could get data to tell us every little bit of every little step and it be perfectly true and right, I think there are some temperaments that would wait and wait and wait and not make a move until they could have many, many, many vats of data to do that. What's interesting about your question is you're asking a bit about the mindset of the people that are trolling through the data and whether or not they want to make a claim about the data. What happens the minute you stake a point of view about the data, you're kind of walking around with a target on your back and a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. So that's why you're moving from an individual contributor position into a strategic advisor position because you're willing to take the risk, you're willing to stake a claim or make a point of view about the data and you're willing to say, you know what, now we need to go hire another sales guy. That's the action I think we need to take. Not everybody wants to move into these kind of managerial and leader positions to where they're willing to say, I have a point of view and you know what, 
next quarter, I might have been wrong, but I'm willing to stake a claim and say, I do feel we need to step forward in this direction. That's the part that makes people scared to form a point of view about the data is they don't want the responsibility that comes with it. And because it, it does come with responsibility once you have a point of view. Yeah, but it's, it sounds like you're, what you're saying, don't let me put words in your mouth, is that it is from a risk reward profile, it is a, a better career strategy to take some points of view than to play it safe. Exactly. Exactly. All right. If you want to grow in your career. if You mm-hmm. you know what, though? And I don't want to poo-poo the fact that we need some really deep-thinking individual contributors that can become almost like fellow partner level, right, and fellows inside organizations. There's a place for that because we need a lot of freaks of genius around data itself. But if you want to go in management and leadership, you need to start to create points of view about the data. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so now you mentioned that we, we got to cover actions, you know, what we need to do as a result of these data. And you have a bunch of verbs in your book, which I got <laughs> I a kick out page. of. I love that page. I love that page. So how, how do you think about verbs uh, and, and, and what are we doing wrong when it comes to our verbs? Yeah, I, this was such a fun journey for me because we work with amazing brands and I pulled thousands of just data slides, slides that had a chart on it. And then I pulled apart the parts of speech, collected every verb that was associated with data on these 2,000 slides. And then I found a pattern in the verbs themselves. Um, So that was, I'm such a pattern finder. And I love that you love that page because it was a lot of work. So there's two types of verbs. They have two different kinds of energy to them. There's what we would call a performance verb. And these would be things that help you reach KPIs, help you reach big organizational results. And then there's process verbs. These are the activities you do in support of a performance verb to get something done. So think of the verb to run, right? Run is a verb, but you have subverbs to get you there. You have you have to pump your arms, you have to pump your legs, you have to breathe real heavy. Those are process verbs that you do to get you so you can run. So it's kind of like that. There could be a big performance verb that could be measured by an executive and then the supporting verbs that fall under it. It was fun. This this is definitely how the title of the book says to take action. This is definitely the guts of the types of action you may take from data. It was pretty profound. It was fun. It's not exhaustive. I mean, but it's pretty exhaustive. I went through it and couldn't find any more verbs, at least in our work or our clients' works. Well, and it's interesting when you, when you say run, and I'm thinking about process versus performance, I kind of think of the word run as, as being in the middle. And performance would be like, I got there, you know, and I got there at, you know, four minutes, 12 seconds. And I, at this rate of speed, I, I was running and that, that's my high performance. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is a process verb is you're either done or you're not a little bit. So the process verbs are binary. You've either completed it or haven't. And the performance verbs are ongoing or kind of a bit more conceptual, like, I I want to disrupt a market. Like the data says we should, you could say, oh, we need to create flavor innovation. That is something you could do based on some data. Or you could say we need to disrupt an entire market on flavor innovation is so different and has so many more things you have to do to support that performance. It's just I guess you can call them mega verbs and minor verbs or something, but you could stack a lot of activities under a performance verb, whereas a process verb is more finite. Well, and, and so I'd love to get your take here on on the pros and cons and the ideal contexts, because I hear what you're saying in those performance verbs, they're mega, they're big, there's a whole lot of stuff that would go under them and could change some strategic things in a big way. Uh, and then also some people might find them a, a little bit fuzzy, like, 
what what exactly are you, are you saying? Oh, you're saying we're going to create new flavors and a lot of other things. Yeah. So, so I guess, how do you think about where you're better off having more processed things versus more performance things? It depends on who you're trying to appeal to in the organization. So like if you're a project manager and you're managing your own project, you're going to have a ton of process verbs just to get the project done. And you could stack them up in timelines and do all kinds of things with it. The minute that you feel like you have a proposal that's so big, you need to put it on your boss's desk or your manager's desk, then it needs to have a clear hierarchy to the verbs. And that's kind of what this creates is like, if we're going to do this great big thing, this big market changing thing, name that and then put all the activities under it that support it. And so there is a different kind of an energy if it's going, depending on the scale of the person above you, there's different ways kind of in the book of how to frame that based on uh, who you're communicating up to. Or if you're communicating to your peers in an update meeting as a project manager, that's different than communicating at a board to a board of directors or something like that. Certainly. And I can see that you might get uh, some mismatches if you're going super mega with the performance verbs to some folks who are like, okay, so what do you want me to do now? <laughs> you know, they'd like that sort of spelled out and then and mm-hmm. vice versa. You know, the executive might say, I don't know why you're troubling me with this minor thing. Why don't you just sort of handle that? Yeah. 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 Execs are too busy really to, to have to think through it for you and they want to make sure you've thought through it. So the interesting thing too, is any of these uh, data recommendations you're making, you could have a massive appendix. Slides are practically free. So have the guts be in front, have it be brief and tight and lovely. And then man, you could stack 200 slides in an appendix. And if they're really curious about the details, you provided them, but just don't make them slog through all your details. But it's kind of nice to have them there because then I'll be like, man, that person really thought hard about this. I'll always pee get an appendix. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I, I look at the notes and uh, I want, is that statistically significant? <laughs> um, so I'm right there. Okay. Well, so reorienting a bit here, you have a fun turn of a phrase that we should be more like Yoda when we're doing our presenting. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that concept? Yeah. And what's interesting is when we have something really important to communicate, sometimes we're so either excited or scared about about having to communicate it, we get so caught up that we think when we walk in the room, we are in storytelling, it's called the central figure, that we're the hero, we're the protagonist, we're the ones talking the most, which usually happens in a in a story or a movie, usually a hero is a central figure and, and they have the most dialogue. And it might feel like that because you're in front of everyone presenting. But in reality, you have to flip the context of who you are because the audience is actually the hero. So if you get up and you're presenting and your audience does not latch on to what you say, your idea dies. Like they are the carriers. They're the ones taking out the action from your idea. So if you don't convey it well, you're suddenly rendered powerless by your audience. And so you have to actually approach your presentations or any communication that you do, email, blog, anything. I I get my husband to do chores at home by doing this. You know, you have to really think through like, wait, what is it? How's that work? (laughs) I know, I know. I'm hopefully, you know, someone who loves you is listening and can get you to do their chores. (laughs) No, you have to really flip the mindset and realize, look, I'm in their lives as a mentor, not as the hero. In myths and movies, a mentor is like Yoda was a mentor. Obi-Wan Kenobi was a mentor. A mentor comes along and does one of three things. They help the hero get unstuck 
livestock, or they bring a magical gift, or they bring a special tool. So you look at, say, Obi-Wan and, and Luke Skywalker. He brought the Force, and he brought a lightsaber. He gave him a tool for his physical journey and a tool for his spiritual or heart journey. That's what it should feel like when people sit through your presentation. They should say, whoa, I have the emotional feel to keep going. Or, oh, wow, I did not know that. And now I'm unstuck. Or, oh my gosh, I'm going to run, go do that because I was stuck right there. That's how they should feel when they're sitting through a presentation. They should feel like, oh, in my life journey, when I sat in that presentation, I got unstuck. And uh, it takes a minute for you to flip your framework of who your presentation, and it shouldn't be in service of yourself. It should always be in service of the audience. Yeah, I I really dig that. And so then... When you talk about magical items, what could that look like in practice? So usually anything that's kind of magical is something that appeals to the heart, something that would change a heart. Like if you look at all the different magical moments, it's like something kind of supernatural happens and they get some sort of a breakthrough. So sometimes it's like something unexpected. It could be a surprise. It could be uh, a bonus. It could be all kinds. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to make something feel magical. Sometimes it's even in the delivery of it. Like even in the book, in the data story book, I say, oh, you could throw a whole chart up there. But if you show it over time, and create suspense and surprise, then the results feel even more magical. So it is, it's a tool to help them get unstuck. And there are ways when you communicate it to make it feel like that was a magical thing. You know, that connects and resonates with me as I'm thinking about sometimes, and I guess I'm a weird guy, but if I read in a great book, I'm thinking about uh, Robert Cialdini's influence right now. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that book. In, In a great book that sort of shares the story of, of a scientific study, they sort of set it up like, hey, so people went on the street and they approached folks and they asked them a question. And so actually, I could feel my heart thumping a little bit. It's like, well, well, what happened when they, in, yeah. the, in the baseline control versus the new thing? And it's like, and it was four times more effective, you know, when, when they asked it this way. And so I, I think that's that's exciting stuff. And you're right. When you build that suspense, you you have that experience as opposed to it's just sort of cut and dry. Yeah. Uh, all the data is, is on w- one slide all at once and you're a bit overwhelmed as opposed to we're building into something. Yeah, it's all in how it's revealed over time. You're saying the same things, but it's in how you frame it. That can turn something that would be just fact-based into as you're revealing it, they're feeling something. So, And I guess in that same vein, you've got a, a nice turn of phrase with STAR moments, an acronym for mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. they'll always remember. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a few particular examples of, of this and some tips on how we can generate more of those moments in our presentations? Yeah, so star moments, something they'll always remember. One of my favorite examples, it's actually in my TED Talk, is where uh, Steve Jobs spent about the first 30 minutes of the iPhone launch creating and creating and building and building and building suspense. And then the moment he turned the iPhone on, it was you can hear a gasp, an audible gasp in the audience. Went, oh! When they saw scrolling for the first time, like your listeners might be too young to remember that, but when they saw scrolling, they knew right then that he had made a revolutionary new product that had never existed before. But he could have just like whoop, whoop and got it on and like turned it on and all of that. But he knew the moment that they saw. So he went through the hardware, he went through the features, he went through the buttons. He never, they never even saw it turned on yet. And when he turned it on, it took everyone's breath away. So 
some of that was the timing. Now, granted, some of it is the amazing product, but you could use a shocking statistic. It's something that whatever it is in your talk that you want them to chatter about at the water cooler after, right? When they leave the room, it's like, well, I'll never forget that. It could be a shocking image. It could be a powerful metaphor. It could be an emotive anecdote or a story. There's just a lot of different ways you can create that moment where they'll be like, oh my gosh. And it could be any emotion. It could be shock. It could be awe. It could be tears. It could be like something in it where they just were like, wow, I'll, I'll just never forget that. And really great talks have those. Well, well, yeah, I'd love to incorporate some more of those. So that's a, it's a fun example with Steve Jobs. Can you lay a few more on us? Another fun one that I love is when Michael Pollan, I don't know if you are familiar with his with the food? books. Yeah, with the food. And what we did in that example was he was wanting to explain how broken our food supply system is. And uh, you can find this video. It's actually really well done. It was from kind of like a TED-like event called Pop Tech, and he spoke there. And so we went out and bought two Big Macs, and he had a, it was only one Big Mac. He had one Big Mac on the table, and he wanted to explain how much crude oil it took just to make that one Big Mac. And it took like 36 ounces or something. So we had him pouring crude oil into these clear glasses so everyone could see how much crude oil it took just to make that one hamburger. So, and that was like a moment they'll always remember. And besides, we didn't use real crude oil. We used Hershey's syrup. So at one point he dipped his finger in what everyone thought was oil and licked it. So that made it kind of extra special. We had one happen here the other day with Data, uh, one of my client service people. He was going over how we're doing on our revenue and he said, wow, this quarter over this quarter, we're really low. And, you know, and everyone's like, oh no, because everyone's bonuses depends on (laughs) how well we do our invoicing. And so then he said, oh, but look, this is how much we have to invoice. Get your invoicing in, you know, and it went, went way up and everyone applauded. So everyone knew we had hit the number, but it also put the right kind of pressure on client services to get their invoicing done, right? So there's ways to do it to create action that, that's just different. Well, so we talked about the arcs. We talked about some of the, the words and the special moments. I think that maybe as we're entering the, the end here, could you sort of summarize kind of what's the step-by-step? If, if we want to create a, a data story, what is the ABC of making that happen? Yeah, I I think obviously the explore phase, my assumption is everyone has done that well, because once you're done exploring, whatever is the data set or multiple data sets, you do the synthesis and you have an outcome. You have a problem or opportunity that you found in the data. So that's where you're at. That's where this book starts. We're under the assumption you found a problem or an opportunity in the data and now you need to communicate it. Then what you need to do is think through what your executive summary is. And that's that three-act data story. I was telling you, I read you one where it's like, what is the three-act? structure of your executive summary, and then think through who am I delivering this to and how much information do they need? You might be able to just stop at the executive summary and put it in an email and send it to your boss, or it might be such a high performance verb you're asking everyone to do. You might need to make a 200-page document. So you just got to really think about who needs to read this. Like we create slide docs, which are these skimmable, they look like almost like magazine, skimmable, readable documents. And I recommend you make, if it's kind of a bigger proposal, you build about nine or so skimmable slides in the front. And like I was saying a bit ago, maybe you build as dense of an appendix as you may need to support it. And then you circulate it and then you talk about it and get approval. So the book really was in service of faster decision-making. So I think that your audience specifically plays a role a lot in coming up with ideas. And then some people get frustrated in organizations because their ideas aren't heard. So even though this is framed for data, you could actually use a lot of the 
frameworks in here for any idea. It doesn't just have to be data and how you craft it and communicate it, put it into a document in a way that somebody above you in the organization understands, it really should be able to help your ideas get unstuck. If you're feeling like you're hidden or your ideas get hidden, this will really help with that. Excellent. Thank you. And and, and now I just kind of want to go with a, a free-for-all in terms of, you know, top do's and don'ts when it comes to slides and presenting, <laughs> you know, you could just let loose things you see all the time that you think need to stop right away or, or things you're so yeah. surprised you never see and you really should. Oh, how great. I think, well, number one, my number one top do, I already kind of answered, and that's start with empathy. Think about your audience first. The other thing is, is I think there's this gap. I don't think a lot of presenters can read the audience. I was just, I was actually just talking to someone who was telling me about this situation where the audience slowly got up and left. And by the time this guy was done presenting, there was only like six people in the room. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Why did they keep going? Like the minute five people left, I'd stop and be like, hey, can I pull you real quick? Can, am I, answering what you guys came here to hear? And if not, can we just go to a Q&A form? Like I would have just stopped. So I think I think sometimes when it's a bad presentation, I don't think enough people stop and just turn it into a Q&A. That would be the ideal. Slides are still cluttered, but I think it's because people use them as a crutch. I think people use their slides as a teleprompter. So I still would recommend people take their dense slides and split them out across multiple slides. I can do a 40-minute talk and I can have up to 300 clicks. You'd never know it. It doesn't look like that, but it's better than having these dense slides that people read. And, you know, I went on a a campaign. My book, Slideology, was all about making cinematic slides, highly conceptual slides, and using them as a visual aid. But 85% or so of content that's built in a slide deck really is a document, and it needs to have the density. You can't pass around pictures of kittens on a slide and people know what you're talking about. You have to have the supporting content if you're going to circulate it like a document. So that was when I wrote the book Slide Docs. What I was trying to do is polarize and say, this is a visual aid and it has this level of of hardly much visual density. This is a document. Make them really dense, but don't do that weird in-between thing where it's not a document and it's not a slide and it's not a visual aid, but to really just make it dense like a document or sparse like a visual aid. And I think there's still too much stuff in that weird, confusing middle. People aren't kind of pushing their decks to the edges. So I I would say those are my big pet peeves. All right. Thank you. And anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? (laughs) I think you're doing a great job. I don't, I don't have anything. I'll let you know if another idea gets sparked. All right. Well, how about, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love a quote by uh, Winnie the Pooh. I used to have it in, not engraved, but in vinyl lettering in my reception area. And it says, promise me you always remember you're braver than you believe and stronger than you seem and smarter than you think. I love that quote. I tell it to others, mostly to women. I have to tell women, I think we're hard on ourselves and we're braver and stronger and smarter than we give ourselves credit for. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? You know, I, there is definitely like a book that kind of changed me and it is based in research and it's a book by a guy named Chris Vogler. It's called The Writer's Journey. And I did a lot of research on story all over the place, got into Joseph Campbell, just did three years of of research on story, but the way he framed the story structure and the archetypes changed my heart to where now I use 
story almost as a lens, as a coping mechanism for life. And so that body of research really meant a lot to me. And any other favorite books? That one I love. There's the classic books that every business person reads, like Good to Great. Right now I'm bought and distributed uh, the book Ownership Thinking because I really want people here that work here to understand that bonuses are paid out based on profit and have people become more understanding of how a business is run. And that's been really, really fun to train in that. So that's the one I'm kind of fixated on right now. And how about a favorite tool? Something you used to be awesome at your job. I use this thing called Pocket. And so if I'm trying to plow through my day in an interesting article or something on the internet, instead of reading it right then, I put it in my pocket. And then what's cool is you can open the app on your phone or whatever, and you could read all these articles on the airplane, even if you don't have Wi-Fi and stuff. But the interesting thing is I used to pause and actually read a lot during the day. And I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Now I put it in my pocket. And then maybe three days later, I go to read it. And I'm like, I don't want to spend the time on that. It's not as interesting two days later as it was when I thought I saw it the first time. And so I'm actually saving myself time and then being choosier in what I choose to spend my time reading. Oh, that is really great. I love that. I feel the same way with, if I get a good idea, I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I should do something mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. immediately. And I'm like, well, no, I'm just going to tuck it over here. And then a couple of days later, it's like, you know, don't think that's so great. <laughs> yeah, I used to do that. Like I'd get an idea and pound out an email and send it to someone. And now I don't, I just save it or I, or I, I tag it to go four days later and then I look at everything and then I, I've been deleting things I thought were great ideas in the moment and not telling anyone about them. Oh, so let's see, that's a tool. How about a favorite habit? I like my morning routine. I think what you have on your mind when you fall asleep kind of shapes what you do with your brain cycles while you sleep. So I try to read uh, contemplative spiritual things or psalms. And then in the morning, I try to read things from books of wisdom. And then I feel ready to work. I carve out up to three hours, at least four days a week, up to three. And I'm a morning person. I'm up at 5, 5.30. So I get use the first three hours to create or write or invent or produce. And it just makes me feel like I lived a fuller life if I make something every day. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They share it with you frequently or retweet it? Yeah. You know, I think the ending phrase, or it's close to the end of my TED talk, where I say something like, the future is not a place that you go. It's a place you get to create. And I get quoted for that a lot. And I think I'm very much, I live in the future. My brain is always in the future trying to think about where does the company need to be in 18 months? What should I write in 18 months? I'm always living my life about 18 months out. And so that always meant a lot to me, but I didn't realize other people would feel like they too had the power to create their future. So that was a fun one. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, well, we have Duarte.com, D-U-A-R-T-E, which is my company website. And we're up on Twitter on at Duarte. I'm up there at Nancy Duarte. And I do connect to anyone who connects me on LinkedIn. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think that being other-centric, if there was one thing I could ask everyone to do, it's to get to a place where you have mental models that help you understand empathy and understand uh, the other person before you communicate to them quickly or rashly or, you know, just do a little bit of planning before you open your mouth. It goes a long ways. All right. Nancy, this has been a treat. Thank you. I wish you tons of luck with your company and the book data story and all your adventures. Thank you so much. It was fun to chat with you. 
I really appreciated Nancy's takeaways about how the direction of charts really lends themselves to a story. Hey, we're going up, up, up. Hey, we're going down, down, down. We got a problem. Hey, we were going down, but we fixed it. Now we're going up. And so that just sort of transforms how I see bar charts, line charts, and start thinking about the story behind them. I also really appreciated her take on making sure you don't forget to share the messy middle or your failures in your stories and how that makes a world of difference. And I'm reminded of my buddy, Ronnie. He was talking about watching the movie The Skulls. I guess that was, wow, the year 2000. Well, anywho, in the movie, there's a good period of time where things are just going very well for the protagonist. And it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And my buddy Ronnie said, you know, I think I would enjoy just watching things go well for this guy for the whole movie. And then as we talked about it more, we realized, no, no, he really wouldn't. That would get old and boring pretty quick. And and that's kind of the whole idea with stories. There is a challenge, a conflict, some tension. You're wondering, "Uh uh-oh, is this thing going to work out? And in so doing, you're engaged and you're hooked. So, so don't miss out on the opportunity to share the messy middle and to share some of the failures and how those have resulted in transformations for you. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F505. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. Todd Davis is coming back from Franklin Covey sharing how everyone deserves a great manager and how to be one. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.